0: Hello and welcome to the World Fellows Podcast. My name is Emma Skye, and I'm director of the World Fellows Programme at Yale. My guest today is Nizama Dean. Niz, welcome to the podcast.
1: Good morning, Emma Skye, Order of the British Empire. <laughs> Thank you. It's a delight to be here.
0: So, Niz, you were born and bred in London. Tell me about your family, your childhood, your London.
1: Uh huh. So I was born and raised in London. I was born in central London at University College Hospital, but very soon after I was born. And that's relevant because my London has geared around Gower Street, where I was born, oddly. But we moved within a few months to Tower Hamlets in East London, where I was essentially raised for the rest of my life. I still live there. Uh, it's one of those places where if you ask people, or if you tell people where you live, and, and you say, I live in Whitechapel, it's now very cool. They're like, oh, when did you move there? That's super cool and trendy and up and coming. But growing up, when you were asked where did you grow up and you said, Whitechapel, you got a pat on the shoulder being like, oh, sorry to hear that. And so um, I grew up in East London. um, And what's interesting is I think, and this has been a continuing theme for me, it's a living past. It feels like my upbringing in Whitechapel and Tower Hamlets generally, where I went to school up until the age of 18, is something which I learn more about as I go through life. I learn new languages, new frameworks to see my upbringing. And so it's this amazing experience growing up in relative, you know, disadvantages, as one might say, schools weren't great. We had loads of supply teachers. You had kids who were misbehaving, but that was the norm. So growing up that wasn't this odd thing for me it was just oh that's just school. Um and so what's fascinating is learning the skills that you've learned as you know a self-defined uh, educationist learning skills like resilience those things came naturally because of where I grew up learning things like negotiation the foundation of those skills came growing up where I grew up and so actually appreciating that upbringing through the lens of language, I learn over time, especially during this wonderful experience as a World Fellow, c- continues. So I'm, I'm I'm very grateful about about that. My mum and dad were bo- both born in Bangladesh. Um, dad came over um, in the very early 1970s. He actually went to a secondary school. The building itself was no, that was his no, that was his secondary school, and it became my primary school. So it was a very local experience. And so he would take us to this school that he went to. Then we would go into school and he would point at other parents and say, oh, I know that guy. He was like this. It was a ruffian in school. Um, And and they would be taking their kids. And so it felt like a very localized experience, which, again, when I look back into the history of the location, it's where the Huguenots settled. It's where the Jewish community settled. So it's a very...
0: Where the int- first immigrants always go. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's
1: a very settler, first generation of immigrants, settler type place. Now, saying that, there were some rough ends to it. You know, I, t- I take a very nostalgic view because I'm a glass half full kind of guy. But, you know, the, the, the a few vivid moments I want to share, which I think have stuck with me, is when I was... I would say eight, nine, ten around that period, and this is the eighties and nineties. Dad would come home um, with blood on his hands um, because he'd have to fight off fascists on the street. It wasn't it wasn't easy, and I'd, and they were very very good at keeping those from us. So I would I remember we had a two floor maisonette, and I'd be on the top floor, and so it's a block of flats, and Dad would come home, and I I. It, it, Traumatise is the right word, but I would be up as a 9, 10-year-old. I'd say I went to bed, but I'd stay up, make sure he came home, because on more than one occasion, I know that thugs on the street would, would have would attacked him, essentially. And he was this quite short but butch guy, so he could take care of himself. And then he'd, he did. Um, and, you know, when they say, if you see me, look at the other guy, I'm sure that was the case with him. And I'm sure he he gave more than his fair share's worth. But... That definitely had an impact growing up because um, I, I, I remember that vividly even now. The worry I had, the feelings of worry I had growing up. And then, you know, my mum would take me to school. And then I remember being called, um, and this is a word that's acceptable in, in the U.S., but in the U.K., to be called a packy, as you know, is a very derogatory term. And I got called a paki um, as I was walking to school with my mother. Um, and this was on Whitechapel High Street. And I remember being very young, it would have been seven, eight. And I looked back at the guy and said, But I'm Bangladeshi. (laughs) And I didn't understand the notion of why he was calling me a Pakistani. I'm I'm ethnically Bangladeshi. Um, So those are the things I remember. Um, It was a a very enriching upbringing. I was very curious. My London, um, and London I love, it's the best city in the world, bar none. It's a city I was fascinated by. So growing up um, in London, you're kind of isolated when you grow up in in areas of, I would say, deprivation because there's many ecosystems created to support each other. And that's why generations of immigrants go into particular places. I was very curious um, about other places. And it was such a big deal that even at the age of 16 or 17, I would jump on a bus and go across London to Finchley, to the O2 Centre, and hang out with a friend. And when I came back, I would be asked, "How? what was it like? What were they like? How did you get there? Um, to the point where growing up, even, even friends who had to go to other places in London would ask me for directions because navigating London was this peculiar thing. And so I think you realise, as you accumulate privilege over time, that space is something that you don't think about. So when I now work with young people and we, you know, for example, combating youth violence, heavily located into particular areas, but the people who often address the issues of youth violence are thinking about London as this huge spread of space, which it is, and that you can easily navigate and escape, for example. But when I think back to my upbringing, you couldn't do that. It was hyper-localized. You couldn't leave. Um, And so going back to what I said, where I was born, I ended up going to university at this wonderful institution called SOAS, which is just off Gower Street. And I remember when I became student union president, um, the Princess Royal, for about two or three years in a row, uh, I, I was presented to her on behalf of the students, and I, I said the same, I made the same joke. Uh, I said I was born in Gower Street and I found myself back to Gower Street. And then she would say, ah, oh, you haven't gone very far, have you? And we'd both <laughs> chuckle. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's my London and my upbringing, I would say.
0: So you mentioned you went to SOAS and you were elected president of the student union. It's an elected position. It's a great university and it's sort of renowned as a very politicized space. How did you become someone who didn't join a radical group but was somebody who brought people together?
1: Mm. It's a really good question. I think my... Could you ob-
0: always strike me as somebody who looks for common ground? And that's not the easy option to take.
1: Oh, it's often the hard option, especially when you occupy spaces which are sympathetic to change makers, People who want to disrupt the system or people who are upset by the system, and I really sympathise with those points of view. But I think when you come from the background I come from and you don't have the luxury of high opportunity cost. Whatever you do has to make an impact. So when I went to SAWAS, I remember having to have three part-time jobs. I sold boutique ladies' wear at House of Fraser, uh, which was great experience. Loads of life experiences came up with that, Emma. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I, I I was selling death insurance on the phone and I was working part-time at the university. And so I had very limited time and. My studies actually probably suffered as a result of it. And I remember in my third year, and this was peak post Iraq war, and the activism on campus was huge. Everything was about the Iraq war. And I was really, really sympathetic, and I agreed with the cause, and I agreed. And you know, I was one of the two million that walked out from college with my fellow students and said, Should we be doing this? And I remember working all those hours, and then on a Sunday, I really wanted to go to the library at a certain time, but the library was closed. But my students' union wasn't actually representing the views of me just wanting to study. So what was the point of this amazing university having a great voice about these world issues when there are students on campus who don't have the resources to self actualize That really irritated me, so I ran for student union president. Um, And I think I realised very quickly... I had to negotiate that. I agree with you. I really do. But you have to understand there are other other things here, like me wanting to get my my degree. So I need you to help me out here. So I ran on a platform and I ran against the incumbent. And, and to this day, Lauren, if you're listening, you're awesome. I, 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 <laughs> I, 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 I regret running against Lauren because she was amazing. Um, but I wanted to run for that position. I wanted to fix um, certain injustices that I thought were equally important to me. Locally as well as internationally. And so I I ran and I got elected to the surprise of many Um, It turns out um, I'm a natural networker and campaigner and just spoke to a lot of people Um, and Got elected and I think what I then realized was just how complicated all the issues were And so i committed myself to creating a space that was neutral where I would allow everyone to feel safe about voicing their opinion no matter how controversial, as long as it didn't break the law. And I realized I was quite Voltairean when it comes to my own freedom of speech. Um, Advocacy, I think everyone has a right, and we need to air them out. And the space in which you do it becomes so important. And so I learned the art of disagreeing whilst agreeing, and that there's a lot of grey. And I think my upbringing helped with that, coming into university and navigating those spaces, like I had to help with that, and then having to just talk on issues which I had a strong opinion on, but then didn't have the luxury of acting on them at the same time. So all of that, I think, merged together to allow me to really navigate those spaces and work on some great campaigns. The Living Wage campaign I worked on with colleagues. And again, the tactic there was, we, we I think we when I was University of London Union president, we got seven universities of seven colleges of the University of London to commit to paying the living wage. Now, that included some direct action, but it was part of a very um, thought-out process uh, from community organizing. And so I think that's where I I probably get it from, and it stuck with me. Um, And so now I I try and see the viewpoints of most people in a room um, and, and try and understand first where they're coming from and then ask questions around, well, will we get there through this tactic first and foremost? Should we relegate that to a secondary or a tertiary tactic? How should we package this? And so trying to um, help process emotions is something which I think I've learned to do.
0: So you work for the Prince's Trust, and you're a big fan of Prince Charles and the monarchy. (laughs) Can you tell us What is the Prince's Trust and what is the work that you're actually involved in?
1: You're trying to get me in trouble, Emma.
0: (laughs) Not all the monarchy, but it's (laughs) the monarchy. (laughs) No, I
1: I, I tell you what, I genuinely am a huge admirer of the Prince of Wales. Um, I will admit I knew very little about the monarchy in terms of my own awareness of them. And so by design, it didn't make sense to me growing up. And I can be quite honest about that. And then... Seven years ago or so, I joined um, part of um, his many outfits of of charities, um, and I became head of communications for Mosaic, an initiative he founded separately um, to engage young people from disadvantaged communities, particularly ethnic minority communities, and particularly if you go further deeper into Muslim communities at the time. And it's since gone on to engage every other community you can think of who are Self-defined as isolated, I would argue. Um, and what I learned quickly around that time is just how long he's been doing this stuff, using his convening power to address issues. So even something like Teach First, which most people now take for granted, which, of course, is a sister organization of Teach for America, the original convening of that group was by the Prince of Wales. And he got McKinsey and business in the community and others. And Brett, the guy who founded Teach First, was, a, I think, a, a an intern, for McKinsey. And he came along and that convening power is something which he utilized. And then when I look at the five decades worth of work he's done around the environment, organic food, preserving cultures through Turquoise Mountain in Afghanistan, to five decades of commitment to young people, which is where I am now, the Princess Trust, which is now 44 years old, founded with the severance package he got from the Navy, and, and entrusted into young people to help promote them to self-actualize. And if you dig deeper, actually, and you realize the types of young people who was reaching at the time, they were young people growing up in some of the most deprived areas. We're talking the race riots of the 70s, 80s, um, creating an enterprise program where you you give young people a a small amount of money and a mentor and say to them, here, you can be the best you can be. Fast forward 40 years, we've reached well over a million people. We've now committed to re- reaching another million. Um, and my job within that space of Mosaic, which is the piece that I oversee, joined the Prince's Trust about three years ago. So my job within the organization is to be the head of Mosaic and to be a a disruptor um, and a critical friend to my senior colleagues. And they are very open in receiving my um feedback, I think. I hope they'll take me back still. Um, and, and also, so I'm in charge of community integration, which really does mean, are there communities of young people, especially? 11 to 30 is young for us, by the way, so it's not just students in schools. Are there communities of young people who feel isolated, who feel like they don't belong? And then what are we doing to make sure we are reaching them? So if you're in the Isle of Skye, if you're in Scunthorpe or Grimsby. And so looking really through data around who are the young people struggling in our country, who are feeling isolated, what can we do to help them self-actualize and how? what can we do to help them fulfill their potential? And within that, you then have a bit of fun, right? So you know that the country is segregated to an extent. So can we help curate our programs in a manner where people who are living side by side in a community but not necessarily integrating, can we place them together? in a way where they are more likely to engage with each other. So if you both need a job and you live in Bradford, the hope is you'll both get a job together and that seeking employment will enable you to meet each other in a meaningful way and not necessarily in a more contrived way, which is, hey, you're Asian. Hey, you're white. You should be friends, you know. Um, And the space for all forms of um, engagement, but I think where we sit, it's really looking at it from a from a position of of meaningful engagement on scale, on mass. You know, our aim is to reach a hundred thousand young people a year, um, and so the programs are vast. There's many um, a, a line into help, but broadly speaking, we we help people live, we help them learn, and we help them earn, um, which is education, employment and training, essentially. So there's a suite of programmes and we meet young people where they are, which is why I love the organisation. It's very focused on the needs of the person as opposed to, here's our programme, this will work for you, do it. So um, I can speak for a long time about the organisation, as you can tell, so I'll stop (laughs) there.
0: So the UK is a country in crisis. And can you see a way forward, a way in which... Brits can heal, reconcile, come together?
1: This has been occupying my mind a lot during this fellowship. Um, I think we, we are definitely polarised in, U- in the UK. We have this binary def- identity going forward of, of remain and leave at the moment. And we, ha- we had loads of other issues before and I think they've all manifested and congealed into this binary identity of remain and leave. Um, a few weeks ago, you will uh, know that we had this session with um, uh, Mark Brackett, who runs the, the social inte- emotional intelligence unit here at um, Yale, and he said something which I really enjoyed, which is his book talks about emotional scientists and emotional judges. And on a really basic level, I think we need more emotional scientists. The ability for us to not judge and have the ability to to, to listen to each other and to listen to where we're coming from. Because I think what's happening is we're going into this very uh, binarized, just made up a word, form of engagement. And that isn't helping. Um, um, I I have hope. Um, I really do. I think um, the UK and Great Britain has such a rich history of, of reconciling. Um, and there's so much goodness to it that I think we just need to, to dig deep into ourselves and recognize what's amazing about us. Um, I obviously come from a world of civil society, um, so I think there's a lot we can do. I personally have done some incredible work with um, a few colleagues from the Church of England around this issue. So we, you know, we looked at this and thought, this is hugely polarizing, what can we do? And one of the ways we're doing it, which I think is a huge problem at the moment, is the very intentional use of tactics of disinformation. Now, we knew this was happening on social media. This has been happening for a while. It's become a conventional uh, form of... Warfare is a strong word, but it's a conventional form of campaigning and tactics to try and get the vote through. And I think we need to hold people to account way more on those issues. So, for example, it's not good enough to during a leadership hustings to change the name of your Twitter handle to Fact Check UK. That is not creative communications, that is not creative campaigning, that is intentionally trying to uh, shift people's views about um, what they think might be fact and not fact. And I think that's dangerous. I think the intentional erosion of trust in our institutions is deeply worrying. I think a narrative of people versus the politicians is deeply worrying because we have to endure beyond this. And it will. we will move on. Some 31st of January, we'll either leave or we won't. Something. I mean, eventually, we're going to come to a halt. We're going to leave the European Union. Something will happen. That is beyond me, intentionally. And I'm staying out of that political decision. I'm going to let the politicians deal with that. But what they cannot do is during that process continue to create divisions for short-term political gains, trying to get votes, trying to separate a segmentation of the constituency of the UK so that they get enough votes to then push something through. That is dangerous. And I think trying to have more civility in our conversations is important. We saw Rowan Williams um, intervene a few days ago, and I think civil society has a big role to play. I really think civil society needs to step up here. Um, We need to educate... um, civil society to understand what is fake what is not. We need to be a bit more vocal about holding our leaders to account more Um, so I think there's practical steps we each can take, institutions can take civil society can take. I think um, our leaders need to really think twice about the language we use and the impact that has and going back to the young people that I work with the level of uncertainty, the level of discomfort they're feeling about their future is no joke and this is the generation that is meant to take us forward. And so I think that's broadly what we have to do, but I'm hopeful, I really am still. Um I think we as a nation have a very stiff upper lip. Uh I think this if it you know what doesn't break you makes you stronger, right as the saying goes, and I think I don't know where the strength what the strength will manifest itself in, but I do think going forward, we'll have no choice but to be stronger. So I'm hopeful, but I think some steps need to be taken fairly quickly and decisively now, and that's what I I hope to do when I go back.
0: You know, listening to you, I wonder, in a few years from now, will I see the name Nizamuddin on the ballot box? (laughs) Is that what you're thinking of for your future? Are you going to go into elected politics?
1: My... my perspective on on impact is 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 just that where can I make the greatest impact where can I make th- use of the privileges I've been afforded in life to advocate for many more who are just like me and others who are not like me uh, to create a better society for all of us um and up to this point I've I've realized that my power has been in the space I've been in um and and If an opportunity arises in the future where I have that impact elsewhere, I will definitely look into it, (laughs) Emma Sky. I I hope that wasn't too much of a politician's answer. But intentionally, I mean, what I will say is I I very intentionally actually stayed away from party politics, as you know. Um, Me and a few friends a good few years ago founded an amazing organization called the Patchwork Foundation, which was intended to help underrepresented groups get into the political process. And that was very much around how do you shake up um, diversity of thinking in leadership so that it's far more sensitive to the needs of the entire society. Uh, And so I strongly believe in that. And so I've been, it's something which I I, I am very committed to. And so, you know, I I gave myself three rules about 10 years ago of what I want to do in life, which is uh, constantly develop. As a human being, I think uh, evolving and, and learning is so important. Two, have significant impact, um, including global impact. And three, have fun. Um, and and the three, the, those three things. As long as I'm doing those three things, I'm a very happy bunny. Um, and where I do that, I almost I'm. Um, uh, I do i do not say I don't care, but I'm quite. I'm plus as to where I do that. Um, but I, I those three things are very important to me. Um, and so up to now, I've, I've probably decided that going into the political route, one of those probably wouldn't work out as well. But in a few years' time, if that means it could work out, who knows? Um, and this program hasn't helped. You know, everyone's a bloody minister. and Everyone's going into the foreign ministry or running for president. And so you're just like, I feel left out and I have FOMO. And so for the sake of FOMO, I might run for politics. Who knows? <laughs>
0: Dean thank you very much
1: Thank you Emma